Welcome back to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rate of Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dan Winter and Rowan Grant, the founders and portfolio managers at Arbor Capital. Arbor Capital is an investment firm focused on venture capital and growth equity investing within the SaaS and tech sector. They work with family offices and high net wealth individuals who are seeking to invest long-term patient capital in high growth private businesses. Dan and Rowan share their journeys from entrepreneurs to family offices and to the establishment of the first fund in 2016 which at the time of recording has achieved a gross investment rate of return of above 30% and multiple on deployed capital of more than 4x. For me, I enjoyed hearing how their journey has led to the evolution and their launch of their new fund, how how it's shaped their new structure, their investment philosophy, and what they're looking for when investing and targeting private growth businesses. If you're about to take off for the Australia Day long weekend, or you're enjoying a couple more weeks of fun in the sun, I hope you've had a great refreshing break and you're looking forward to pursuing a prosperous new year with the team here at The Rate of Change. With that being said, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax and enjoy it. Dan Winter and Rowan Grant, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thanks for having us, Murdoch. Hey, Murdoch, good to be here. Why don't we kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourselves and, and how you both got into uh, financial markets. Dan, why don't we you start things off? Sure, maybe uh, I'll give you a bit of my background. So um, I guess I, I studied international relations business at, at Bond University on the Gold Coast and uh during my time studying, uh, I guess I realized pretty quickly that I had a passion for technology and technology businesses. So I uh, actually teamed up with a friend of mine and we started to build our own technology um, software. And it was a really interesting experience, taught me a lot about about tech and, and business and ultimately uh, decided not to continue on with that venture and actually went off to pursue management consulting to try and broaden my perspective and learn a bit more about big business and sort of how technology, strategy, finance all came together. Uh, So quickly after graduating university, I went to get a management consultant for a firm called Accenture. Um, I guess technically I was in technology and strategy consulting Um, and and did that for a few years where I learned exactly what I sort of had intended to to get out of that, a lot about how big business operates, uh, you know, ASX listed companies and so on. Uh, and toward the sort of end of a couple of years there, I uh, went back to the drawing board and I thought, you know, what is the rest of my career? And um, for me, it felt like the right thing to do was to look at investing in, in technology, either becoming a founder again or to to make a move into investment. Um, so basically, at the end of that journey, I uh, joined a family office and, and worked in a small family office that was doing uh, pre-seed and seed stage technology investing. At the same time, uh, met Rowan and we actually started our first fund together. So uh, perhaps I'll pass to Rowan. He can tell you a bit about that and and his background. 
Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, Murdoch, I'm a recovering chartered accountant for my sins. Um, started life um, in business advisory and taxation. Didn't like it much. It was good, like fundamental knowledge base to have and, you know, reading and understanding financial statements, but couldn't couldn't see myself becoming a partner of, of the firm. Um, did a complete 180 and um, started a tech startup in the music space, like a consumer facing startup with like <laughs> no idea and no skills on how to do that, um, but learnt a lot. And that was sort of my entree to the tech space. Um, and around the same time, was getting mentored by CFO of a family office. Um, and after that startup failed, uh, joined that office. And that was um, sort of my then entree into private market investing. Um, stayed there for a while, really, really enjoyed it. And then had this really hard decision on whether to stick around and keep learning and expanding my network or go back down the entrepreneurial path um, and start a fund. And um, yeah, met Dan Winter at around that time and decided couldn't sort of put out the fire of that, in, that internal sort of optimism of an entrepreneur and decided to leave the family office and start um, a venture fund. Yeah, it's pretty interesting the journey we all have to get to uh, where we are today. It's uh, not exactly a straight line, is it? No, Definitely never not. is. It always <laughs> not- sounds like a smooth narrative, but um, it never is. Yeah, the reason not, why I find that ca- so interesting, you're saying, Sorry, Dan? Yeah, I was going to say, definitely not in the case of uh, myself. I thought I was going to end up working in the United Nations at one point and uh, couldn't the have United ended. Nations. Yeah. I know this yeah, is a podcast the, about, you know, managed couldn't funds and investing, from that. <laughs> but I need to know the story. United Nations, in what in what sense? No, no, no. It was more an ambition, um, perhaps a far-fetched ambition. But uh, at university, that was my, my interest. So I wanted to work in uh, politics or international affairs in some capacity and uh, pretty quickly realized that wasn't where I was going to land uh, when my technology interest creeped in. So uh, couldn't be further from it now. Don't worry, we all did it. And university, I wanted to become an architect. I was actually in the architecture faculty. You should have met half my mates. They were the Da Vinci's, the Michelangelo's, and I realized pretty quick, smart, that I needed my cab license because I was nowhere near as good. But um, <laughs> yeah, how, how interesting. Um, the, the other thing which we were discussing as well is what you guys do essentially to my understanding is you service um, the clientele which you service are high-end um, family offices. And do you guys want to talk a bit about, um, as you said, with your upbringing, you guys have actually worked for family offices. So would you say that that um, mentoring, you know, working within these communities has given you essentially the understanding of what uh, wealthy families look for in particular investments is that and then essentially the managed fund is the vehicle yeah. about trying to put the two together like do you want to talk a bit about that is that is that correct or have I got that completely wrong no I, I think you've done a good job of summarizing that actually so both Ron and I come from family office background in some capacity um, perhaps I'll talk a little bit about my experience there and then Ron you can talk about yours as well because uh, despite having a lot of overlap in our careers we've got very different experiences in terms of uh, family office exposure but um, it was for me. It was you know it was very eye opening because I joined a family office that was looking at the the earliest stage investing. So we're talking like napkin stage concept ideation stage companies, um, where you're dealing with founders that have ideas and nothing else. Um, and you know it's it's a very 
uncertain environment, teaches you a lot about picking founders and, and what to look for in, in, in people, I guess, more so than, than opportunities, but also um, how important it is to have well thought out business ideas um, that are backed up by sustainable business models. Um, so I guess that that part of the family office world, my early stage exposure is sort of uh, partially what, what led Ron and I to, to building Arbor Capital, which is where we are today. Um, but then in addition to your point, like understanding how to manage money, learning sort of what's important from a from a LP standpoint and uh, limited partner standpoint, the the backer of the fund um, is very crucial to, to to really getting a good grasp of what to think about when you're deploying capital, the types of risks, um, the potential for returns, and how you're going to generate liquidity and so on. Um, so in in my experience, it was super, um, I guess. Um, uh, relevant and contributed largely to to where I've landed today. Yeah, I think it was a natural progression for us to target family offices as LPs, given we had worked previously in investing teams at family offices. I think family offices are like eclectic beasts. I think they're they're. It probably doesn't look this way at the outside, but they're highly emotional organizations when you think about it. I, I was very surprised to understand and see firsthand, um, despite a solid investment strategy and process written down, how often um, decisions or investments would be made based on emotion and understanding that. And, and that's that's natural. That's life. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. But having that insight and seeing asset allocation exercises at a family office and then all the way through to the deployment and security selection um, operations. I think it gave us a good insight to talk the same language and to when we're crafting our investment strategy, um, position that well for, for family offices. So it was sort of a natural progression based on what we'd seen in our prior roles. So that progression led to Arbor Capital. So uh, you have two funds, right? You got the original and then you got the, the new fund. So why don't we, uh, for Alice's segment that a bit, uh, why don't we discuss the the first fund, you know, the fa- how the family office style learning, you know, you figured out what you, uh, you, you're looking for and then you use that particular vehicle to invest, you know, how the returns have been. Do you want to give you an overview of that first fund and then we'll second to the second? Hmm. Sure. So the, the first fund was a, a typical closed-end um, limited partnership focused on early-stage technology investing, so seed and Series A primarily. had a very specific mandate, and it was fundamentally an extension of what Dan and I had been doing the previous you know few years at the family office. So... It was a very defined mandate. We would look at B2B, um, software as a service, marketplace style business models across a a sort of generalist approach from an industry perspective. And that fund is, what was that 2015 vintage, I believe. Um, So it's coming up on seven or eight years now. Uh, It's a 10-year fund, so it's hitting the tail end. I've just started to have, Exits come through in the last few years. Um, I think our our IRR, we've just had a, a couple of markdowns in this environment. So it's it's dropped from, I think, what was 44% to around 30, um, low 30s. Um, 
MOIC is 5.7 from memory. Um, it's a highly concentrated, high conviction fund. Um, we typically took board seats and were was as involved in were was in as involved as we could be with the companies given time constraints. What I were think, the returns? Um, what, uh, what's been the returns for that fund? Yeah, so MOIC was five five point seven. Um, sitting low thirties at the minute. And how's the uh, alignment and the fees work? Uh, we took a pretty standard approach to fees. We just did two and twenty. Um, we we didn't want to. Well, we were pretty new, right? So Dan and I were mm-hmm. both in our twenties when we started that fund, which I think, in some respects. Um, was too young, but we were risk takers. We were lucky to have experienced private market investing at family offices. So there's a lot we didn't know, um, but in some sense, glad that we did that early because we've still got a, a good chunk of our careers left and we've learned so much. So we're sort of rolling that learning into into this current fund as well. So the businesses which you look uh, so which we invested in with that original fund, what was the criteria? Like uh, in order, what were you looking for? Do you want to take back that then? Down? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. So so back then we had a very specific mandate um, for early stage, well, SaaS technology businesses. So um, quite a constrained mandate from the sense of not deploying broadly across categories, um, but looking heavily at companies that were at that expansion growth stage um, so Series A and uh, software-oriented business models. So pretty much every company that's in the, the portfolio that we had there uh, is a software-based business model of some kind uh, and has exposure across many different uh, industries. So I think we have one uh, that's that's sort of fintech exposed. We had one that was AI exposed, um, one that was logistics and one that was education. So uh, as Ron said, very highly concentrated portfolio there. Um, with exposure to software business models. And then, so these, these businesses, um, how, did, how did you find them? Um, look, when initially, I think, given that Ron and I both came from the family office backing, we had fairly strong access to deal flow from many channels. So you kind of, when you're working in the industry for a while, you sort of build up a, like a natural direct inbound um, of founders that are looking to just have conversations with venture investors who have been around the industry for a while, who actually have seen many different opportunities. So we had a large amount of just cold inbound come to us personally. And I think second to that, like, you know, the, the, the typical ways of getting out and, and meeting founders at events and um, promoting the brand through content pieces uh, would always generate additional opportunities as well. Probably the, the, the most common strategy i guess for founders to reach out um at least in terms of some of the the higher quality opportunities that we would have come across the decks were related to founder introductions so these are founders that we'd already invested in or worked with in the past where they you know speak about us as their investor to other founders in the ecosystem and uh those founders would then make the introduction and be like hey look down around do you want to chat to to this particular company that's always been a really strong source of of deal flow so interesting. And the other thing uh, which we discussed many times before is is when you when you so when you were doing deals, um, some of these transactions you would take actually quite a large percentage of the business, right? So 
and we discussed it with these um, uh, quite like working with these founders-led uh, businesses. So, you know, how much um, equity stake would you look to take in these businesses and how would you go about helping improve those businesses, you know, to your benefit when, and their benefit? When we were doing our portfolio construction for the first fund, we had a target of around 10% ownership. Um, now, that that varied quite a lot and it depends on entry entry stage too. So we did a few pre-seed investments where we owned 20 or 25% of the business. And then in some series A investments, we were owning 5%. So your, your entry point can dictate that a lot. Um, but I mean, we won't go too deep into it because it's a big topic, but the venture returns and the power law dynamic um, and then you know how big your portfolio is sort of dictates if you're going to have a any given opportunity, have the potential to return the fund, you need to own, you know, a, a decent chunk of that. Um, so the theory goes. So we didn't have any hard and fast limits, but I'd say around the end of the day, it was around a 10% ownership. And the reason why I was asking that is, uh, you know, we've seen in the past couple of, couple of years the, that this particular space take off. Uh, but if I'm understanding correctly, the majority of the investments you made were essentially before, you know, that bell curve went uh, incredibly north. So you, was, that, was that luck that you managed to set your feet at the right time or were you looking at valuations and the deals were attractive at that particular time and then when they go higher, you're just like, oh, we just don't want to touch this or, you know, what was your mindset? Good question. It's a bit of both. Um, I've always, Dan and I have been talking a lot about how the um, a venture fund is started really based on the timing of the principal's career, right? Um, as opposed to where you are in a market cycle. And I think probably for better or for worse, and probably to be honest, for worse, the LPs in funds are exposed to venture funds separate to the market cycle and not saying that you can predict that but um like we were you know mid to late 20s and venture was just sort of you know coming out of gfc pretty pretty quiet in australia and we started at a fortuitous time when we just had then six six years of just up and to the right in valuations so that made us feel all very smart and special um but if we're honest there's a good chunk of luck in that on the analysis and um, decision-making side, we are very price conscious around valuations. So that means in the last three years, we sat on our hands a good chunk of the time. Um, we couldn't make sense of a lot of the valuations um, based on company growth rates and, and you know how big we thought any given opportunity could be and comparing that to the, the valuation being proposed, we just couldn't see how we would hit our target IRR, which is 25%. And so we do a lot of rigorous modeling and analysis around that. Um, and it meant that every time we were doing our valuation analysis, not every time, but like a good chunk of the time, uh, we would either just bow out and say, guys, we, we can't, we don't believe we can make the returns given this price or we would submit a term sheet based on the price that we were comfortable with and we would get outbid um, by a large margin and I, I mean like in many instances up to 300 um, percent there there would be a fintech opportunity that we'd put at a 10 mil pre-money 
at the seed stage and someone would come and pay 30. And that, that mm. shakes you a bit because you start to go, well, are we missing something? Okay. Like, is silly, this- silly question, but I have to ask, like, did you ever look back at those cases when that, when that occurred and go, are they, is this company still alive? <laughs> That's a very good question. Rowan and I speak about this all the time. We, uh, because to Rowan's point, you know, sometimes we'd issue a term sheet and we'd be like, why have the, why have the founders gone quiet? You know, something's happening in the background here. We can't quite figure out, um, what's going on. And then all of a sudden they'd come back and they'd be like, look, like we're, we're actually accepting this term sheet. That's, that's three times higher valuation than what you guys have proposed. And we'd sit back and we'd just be like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe someone's willing to pay, pay that amount. And, uh, it's interesting to, to your question, Murdoch, because on, on reflection, we actually do keep a strong relationship with all of the founders that we get to term sheet stage. And we often have looped back and tried to, you know, uh, reconnect and, and explore opportunities to see if there's another opportunity to invest because uh, presumably the companies have grown and become stronger, better companies and the market fundamentals have shifted in a way now where uh, perhaps those valuations are more realistic. So um, actually early in the year, we started to do some of those reach outs to, to learn a bit about how wrong we were or if we were correct. And, you know, we had some interesting findings, like some of those businesses were, were raising at, at, at flat rounds, despite being two or three times larger than, than what they were when, when we were looking at them initially. So um, heaps of valuation, multiple compression happened between, I guess, when we were outbid and, and when we'd revisited those opportunities. So uh, it is fascinating. But I think Ron mentioned it earlier. I think the the cycle of venture um, can be, I guess, a, a good thing working in the favor of everyone or it can be a, a bad thing. And I think at that particular point in time, three three or four years ago, uh, valuations were just out of control. So there was so much room for correction and um, multiple contraction, which I think has definitely started to unfold now. At least what we've seen in the market is that valuations are looking much more reasonable. And a lot of these companies... Um, uh, are actually still alive and and succeeding. However, the valuations now look a lot better. Yeah, it's uh, always get told don't use television shows when you're talking finance. But I, I always love that show, the Silicon Valley. Right, hilarious. Um, and there was a Great particular show. scene at a party when the guy's throwing a massive party, and it's like, what's this for? We've raised half a billion dollars with this, that, and the other. And then two years later, he sees a guy in a bar, and he's just like, mate, what are you doing here? It's like 11 o'clock on a Monday and the guy turns to him and goes, I'll give you one bit of advice. No one ever said, you know, you could take less money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and everyone just looks at each other and just goes, wait, you can take less? He goes, yeah, no yeah, one ever yeah. said you could take less because what happens is the more you take, the more expectations grow, the more you have to grow, the faster you have to grow. And it's fine if you hit the first hurdle, everyone's happy, but you know, then it's a bigger yeah. hurdle. So, yeah, mate, yeah. and then he's practically hammered. He's like, best advice I can give you since you're doing a deal, you can take less, take less. I thought exactly. that was the best bit of television advice I've ever heard. But no one ever yeah. discusses that because everyone gets paid from doing all the deals and it all gets exciting. Yeah, well, it's, anyway, it's funny. Anyway, so I digress. And, but, but no, good, good digression. Big, uh, best series of, uh, best tech-oriented series of all time. I think that's uh, so good. legendary. Um, 
but uh, it's it's a good point that you make because it's actually I mean some of the the shifts that we've seen in in the market over the last twelve months are really positive in that sense. Um, starting to see founders think a lot more about you know how do we how do we do more with the money that we have or that we're going to raise. Um, they're a lot more conservative with their projections and with their thinking around capital injection coming into the company. So that's had I, I think there's very positive flow-on effects from a lot of the the, the macro environment. Uh, I guess, uh, complexities that we've had over the last 12 to 24 months. And it's really forcing founders and investors to go back to the table and rethink some of these these growth models and some of these business models. And, you know, how do you actually sustain a business long-term? How do you how do you make a business that doesn't need to raise capital? It's good to see that conversation coming back into the picture. Um, and definitely something that Rowan and I have thought about a lot with the new fund is, is looking at those opportunities to sort of ride the wave of that corrected logic uh, in the market, which is good. Well, this is a great segue after everything into the second fund, right? We've learned, we've made money, we've prospered, things have gone wrong. Um, so I would love, we'd love to hear what is the new fund? Why has it been started now? I think we're discussing as well. There's what three different tiers um, yeah. of investments. You look at all the yeah. thinking of the investments. So if you want to give everyone, maybe, maybe let's begin with how is it structured? Why is it structured that way? What are you looking for? And then how you tier the investments? Maybe I'll do the high level and and pass to Rowan. Uh, I think this one we'll have to split because there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so at, at a very high level, um, Arbor Capital, our new fund, is an investment firm that's focused on venture capital and growth equity investing in technology companies globally. I guess the the tagline for the fund or the, the tagline that Rowan and I pitch when we talk about the fund to founders is that we provide patient capital for high growth private technology companies. And um, there's a lot to, to unpack about how we how we got to that point and I guess how we came to the foundations of the fund. But a lot of uh, initially a lot of our thinking stemmed from the fact that Rowan and I were both very passionate long-term thinkers and we wanted to align that personal mode of operations uh, with, I guess, our strong conviction that patient capital being deployed into private technology opportunities could deliver superior returns long-term. And so those concepts of, you know, patience, long-term thinking, long-term investing, compounding capital, and private high-growth technology companies were sort of key to the, the foundations and establishment of, of Arbor Capital, which is our, our, the current fund that we're working on and, and, and raising. And um, I think there were so many learnings that we had from our first fund um, that led to some of the more technical elements of, of the um, development that perhaps Rowan can touch on uh, just around, you know, how we structured it, why we structured it that way and um, how we landed on the, the strategy that we have today. Yeah, so those principles of like long-term thinking and patience manifested into two material changes to, I guess, the investment strategy and the structure comparing the last fund to this one. Um, on the investment strategy side, it meant that we broadened our scope a little bit to um, not just pure play venture opportunities, but private companies that were still high growth, but they weren't on that venture trajectory of, of you know, orders of magnitude, mul like multiple returns, and that a company that could be, you know, a 20 or 30% CAGR growth that might be bootstrapped is still an attractive opportunity, but falls outside the mandate of a lot of those traditional funds. And we were seeing a lot of these opportunities and were restricted 
in our prior mandate from taking a look at them. So they'd come across the table. Dan and I'd be like, fuck, this is an interesting business. Um, wish we could dig deeper and take a look, but uh, it's just not in the mandate. So we'd, we'd take a pass. And we'd always spoken like a, one day we'd love to be able to include these types of bootstrapped and non-venture scale businesses um, in our strategy. Um, so this fund was an opportunity to do that. So uh, we now look at um, businesses that have been bootstrapped. Uh, we now look at secondary transactions, whether that's uh, taking, allowing founders to de-risk their personal lives and take some money off the table or buying um, buying off other existing investors uh, and sort of everything between that spectrum. So we've broadened that scope. It's still high growth private technology companies, but not just, um, you know, seed series A venture scale opportunities. Um, so that's the investment strategy and how it's different. The other quite meaningful change was to the fund structure itself. We, we did a lot of reflection and deep thinking around why funds tend to be these 10 year life closed end vehicles. Um, what's driving that fund life, you know, some are seven, some are 10 plus two, these, these closed end structures. And Dan and I had had a series of conversations with probably older, more experienced investors around liquidity and time horizons and things like that. And some a principle that we'd taken away was that having an arbitrary end life to your fund may not marry up with the natural exit point of any given company in your portfolio. Um, and I think there's some funds in market today that have, you know, 2012 vintage that um, are probably coming to wind up stage now. And I know some of their portfolio companies aren't ready to, you know, either list or trade sale or, and there's having to, you know, have conversations with their LPs about extending the fund or doing secondary transactions. And we just thought we would prefer to hold a position in our fund until it's the right time to sell. That could be three years. It could be, you know, to be extreme 30 if, if you hold a, a successful company that's compounding capital at high rates, um, we would like to hold that company until it's the right time to sell. So we ended up shifting away from closed end fund structure to um, effectively an evergreen or a permanent capital structure where we can open the books periodically to take more capital in. That's also probably a topic for another day, but uh, provides us the ability to give liquidity to our investors periodically. Um, but Probably most importantly, it allows us to make the decision of when to liquidate a position at the right time for us and the company, not when the fund you know, ends in two years' time, for example. Yeah, that's quite frustrating and challenging because, um, as you said, the first fund, what, it's seven years in, you literally have three years and then what's going to happen to the businesses? Or can you potentially structure it in a way if those businesses are going quite well, um, you know, your second fund can essentially acquire the interest in the other fund or does everything kind of have to be dispersed? Yeah, there's a few things that happen at the end of a fund life. One is that you baked in your LPA, your limited partner agreement, you have an option to extend. So 10 plus 2 plus 2 is, is reasonably common. Um you can sell your position on the secondary market. Uh, you can roll it into another fund. Yeah, there's, there's a plethora of options, but I think what didn't make sense to us was just having this arbitrary end date, like maybe 10 years is a good amount, maybe it's not, but uh, wouldn't you rather hold the company until the right time? It sounds and unnecessary. It sounds yeah. like the people that are making money out of that are the lawyers and the accountants. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. True. We, we very much just thought about it as like, you know, the, the best time to exit a particular holding or a particular company um, will vary so much company to company. And it has no bearing or no relationship to how old our fund is, um, and and also um, how how much we need liquidity in some sense. Like the uh, the the best time to exit a company will be when the best time to exit that particular company is, and no other factor should determine that. Um, so when we were thinking about fund design, to Rowan's point, it was critical for us that we allowed uh, the or. or the, the structure allowed for us to hold positions uh, as long as we need to, to generate optimal returns. Um, and, you know, I, I say to generate optimal returns because we might also realize that an asset is no longer going to grow at the rate that we need it to. And, and then that is the, the time to exit that specific position. So um, it's not necessarily that <clears throat> all assets would be held forever, but uh, more that we do thorough analysis to work out when the right time was to exit a particular holding. Well, it makes our lives a lot easier, especially when we're speaking with clients. One of the main topics with family offices and wealthy families these days is how do you transition wealth, the, the, the transfer, the intergenerational transfer. And then what you learn and you understand is that these founders, um, wouldn't you agree, these founders, they're the ones that have the vision, build something up, but it's a lot to take for the second you know, generation or third generation to be forced into being, you know, I don't know, a baker, candlesmith maker, when essentially, I don't know, they're a musician, right? You know, what do, what do they know? But, you know, mm-hmm. in saying that as well, um, they shouldn't be robbed of potentially a great business that's generating a 30% <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, uh, cash flow every single year because it's a great product. Yes, they don't want to have a bar of it, but, you know, that cash flow is quite important and, you know, it's doing the right thing. So um, and here's a question. Do you think potentially the closed-ended funds is uh, a main reason why there's such a, you know, a push for transactions? Um in these businesses or do you think if this, the, the main structure was like similar to the structure which you're setting up for the second fund, there wouldn't be this you know, need to look for exits as much? Like, I'm just thinking behavioral psychology. And the reason why I'm going with this is kind of like when the American system kicked things off, as in they'll go in and you'll get a three-year contract, gut the contract, hit every, so gut the company, hit all their um, – incentive schemes get paid but they just cannibalize the entire next three five years of the in order to achieve everything today and then you know it looks great on the stocks right now but then the next 10 years of the life of that company is horrendous Hmm. do you think there's a changing culture now i don't know it's a good question like i know there's a few funds that have um breakout companies like canberra in there at the moment and i think from what i understand those LPs have been happy to extend the fund lives because, you know, there will be, there's been a lot of paper value creation on Canberra and that will materialize into liquidity at some point. So I think if you're sitting there as an LP in, in one of those funds that holds Canberra, you're probably happy to wait. Um, on the flip side, if you've got a, a company that's not performing so well, there's value there, but the line of sight to liquidity is less clear. You might be sitting there going, well, we can, what are we holding on for? Like, are we actually, is our, is our capital tied up here to produce more returns or is it tied up here on a, on a hope that things will get better? Um, so yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I do know uh, from memory, the average life cycle of day zero to IPO of a company is 10 years in Australia, I think. So maybe it's something to do with, you know, on average, 
liquidity should happen in 10 years in a company. And maybe that's where the, the sort of 10 year fund life came from, but I'm not sure. Mm. Mm. Well, we'll dig into that, you know, another day, but let's get to the fun stuff. Um, what are you, what opportunities are you seeing in the market? And, um, why I'm really interested in this, God, it's been a roller coaster. You know, free money being poured in on the macro, you know, during COVID times. Then they go, uh oh, it's too much. You know, let's pour water over this fire, starve everyone. Everyone's pivoting. Um, and then we're in this interesting time where, I don't know, uh, the conversations we're having is there's a lot of companies out there that want money, need money. Um, and it's a great, potentially hypothetically, a great time to invest. But, um, uh, a lot of families are a bit gun shy. Is probably the nicest way to do it, and and not necessarily gun shy. They're looking at other alternative assets, such as you know commercial property. You know, uh, private lending's paying fifteen percent, so it's more you know risk reward, right? So you know, how are you finding um, the, the the sentiment out there for the asset class which you guys currently cover, and what opportunities are you currently seeing? I think there's there's probably two two questions in there in one. Um, so the first one is like sentiment, I guess, from the the families and the LPs behind each of the funds that are being raised at the moment. And then the, the, the second one is like, what are the actual opportunities that we're seeing in the market to deploy capital? Um, and I think uh, maybe uh, I'll, I'll touch on the second one and, and Rowan, you could touch a little bit on the, the, the first part of that. So on the LPs, but in terms of the technology opportunities, I think... Um, there, we're seeing a range of different things come through now. We're starting to see companies that are falling out of the scope of VC because they've been backed by VC dollars in the past. However, they're not high enough growth rates anymore to sustain VC reinvestment. So there's a lot of those type companies coming through that are like, well, actually, you know, if we're not going to be on that 100x journey anymore, what do we do? How do we raise money? How do we actually flip this business, make it sustainable, make it more interesting to a, a wider range of investors or actually turn it to profitability? Um, starting to see a lot of founders have have those sorts of discussions with their investor base and, um, and also within their boards, uh, which is interesting in generating a whole new type of, of deal flow and opportunity. Um, I think we're seeing a lot more founders in the early stage actually start to think about, you know, how do I build a business that doesn't require funding or is there a way to reduce or limit the amount of funding that I need over the overall journey um, so that I don't find myself having to uh, raise you know, enormous amounts of capital and have huge preferential stacks above all the ordinary shareholders, which uh, is also uh, a theme that's been talked about a lot at the moment, how the, um, just for, for those that aren't across it there, that's how the preference stack of capital impacts the ordinary shareholders. And, and most often the ordinary shareholders will be the employees and founders of the businesses themselves. Um, so there's a lot of, I guess, uh, talk around, some of those concepts. Um, and then more broadly, I think um, we're seeing a lot of just well-priced, great founders building good businesses that are just coming through looking for great strategic partners long-term. Um, so I think that's been an exciting, exciting trend as well. Um, in terms of the, the LPs, maybe Rowan, you can cover, I guess, the appetite side of things like with the capital flowing into venture funds. Yeah, so... I'd say in the last year, so we've had a lot of conversations with um, both existing and prospective LPs, predominantly family offices, uh, over the last 12 months. And there's been probably since that Silicon Valley bank, the, the regional banking 
crisis in the US since that early March, there's been um, a lot of pullback in in interest in private markets we've found. Um, and talking to our peers uh, in the venture space, sort of, that seems to be unanimous. Um, and that sort of coincides with, you know, the inflation and the rate rises, right? So as the interest rates go up, pushes up the discount rate, lowers valuation. So I think there was a, a dynamic of people not wanting to catch a falling knife and do new deals knowing that they could be buying something that's value is lower in any subsequent month after that for a period of time. So um, most investors we spoke to were sitting on their hands. They were having to allocate any liquid capital they have into re-upping either the, the main family business where the the initial wealth came from, if that's still an operating business, or re-upping into existing funds that were having to then re-up into their portfolio. So there was a lot of holding cash for um, for those types of scenarios, which is funny because you know we spoke earlier in the conversation about how uncomfortable we were with valuations for the prior three years around that exact same time, like the start of 2022 calendar year we got really excited about valuations for the first time in a long time and we were eager to deploy. And um, it's one of those sort of, you know, fearful when others are greedy situations where we, we were seeing the best deals of, you know, many years and, and no one was there doing them. So I found that very interesting. But um, I think if, of recent, like the last couple of months, I think people are starting to be a bit more confident again. We're seeing deals get done. Valuations are still modest and attractive in our opinion. Uh, but yeah, it's still, the pace is so much slower than the, the prior three years. Yeah, look, I, I was speaking with someone else uh, that pointed out to me that that Christmas rally, which we saw like beginning what October, November, uh, the Russell 2000 literally in a, what, a month or five weeks had, went from its 52-week low to its 52-week high. Wow. That's yeah, crazy. Right. After doing nothing, like practically before. And then the other thing which was quite interesting, which we saw, like, you know, just doing a uh, you know, check over what happened last year, is uh, if we completely disregarded what interest rates did and we literally made our investment decisions, I'm talking about macroeconomics here, based on the Australian 10 year bond rate and the US 10 year bond rate, you pretty much would have called the market. That mm-hmm. I find incredibly interesting about. Um, uh, about things, how things have behaved. So that's why I'm, it's very interesting to hear what you guys are seeing as opportunity currently. Uh, and then what, what do you think is going to happen 2024? Pretty excited about 2024, to be honest. It's, um, I think it's a, a lot of people are thinking about the, the market as sort of like a fresh slate, see what happens, see um, what happens with the interest rate rises, if they come through, how that impact will flow on. But um, if we're talking specifically around startups and technology companies and you know building business, I think as I mentioned earlier, there's been like this return to fundamental thinking, and that's a really good theme for us as investors, and uh, I, I guess anyone as an investor right now looking at private market opportunities because it's just forcing the discipline back into the industry that perhaps was lost a lot over the last of the prior 10 years or, or prior five years, I should say, uh, when there was just an abundance of capital available in the market, just flowing into these technology companies um, that created a lot of 
unstructured thinking, a lot of uh, lack of discipline. And, um, you know, the flow on effects of those things are, are huge. And um, seeing that correct, I think, has been has been a very good experience. And I'm quite optimistic about, you know, the opportunities that we're seeing come across the desk already, across all the categories, AI being a big one. We're seeing a lot of that at the moment. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, th- there's no shortage of entrepreneurial talent and technology companies coming through. It- it's more so trying to find some stability and, and clarity through a lot of the macro uncertainty and how that unfolds. Yeah, Dan, so you mentioned um, AI. It wouldn't be a conversation in the or this century if we didn't discuss AI. So um, with the deals that you're currently seeing, uh, what's What's interesting that you see uh, that's come across the table? Are they companies that are a legacy that AI has been introduced to to kind of make them become attractive, or are these legitimate uh, problems being solved uh, by artificial intelligence as a tool to essentially you know improve a service industry or solve a problem? You know, it's it's a good question, Murdoch. Um, we are seeing a lot of. I think Ron and I sit back and talk about this all the time because there's a lot of noise in the AI space at the moment. I think it's something that investors have to be very careful about. Um, And I mean, we have had many discussions where we think a lot of the AI opportunities that are out there in the market at the moment are actually uninvestable or or not interesting. And there's a couple of reasons for this. You you touched on a few of them, but um, I think there's a lot of businesses out there that are sort of positioning themselves as um, AI enabled or AI equipped that are actually just to your, you know, to earlier thoughts in, in the podcast that we've been speaking about, like, you know, they might be services businesses, um, or they might be software businesses that are, that are non AI that are bolting on AI functionality. Um, they may be early stage companies that are, um, positioning themselves as AI, but there's actually no AI talent in the team. Um, they don't actually have in-house AI. They're just leveraging third-party apps. So you have to be very disciplined, I guess, and and specific and, and do your diligence on most of the AI that's coming through at the moment to actually validate that, one, it is what it, what it uh, claims to be in terms of there is AI there. Um, two, that there's actually people in these companies that understand what the AI is doing and how it's working and, and, and how to create value from that AI. Uh, and three, that there's actually a sufficient or, um, uh, should I say, viable business model behind the AI component of the business that, that should be monetized or could be monetized. So these are some of the discussions that Ron and I have when, we, when something comes across the desk. The first thing we'll look at is you know, what, what's, what's actually here in this business that's AI and who is building it. And um, if you start to do that level of analysis, I think you learn pretty quickly that there is a lot of noise. Uh, there's a lot of garbage um, and you do have to be very careful with what you're investing in. And uh, to, to be frank, there's very few businesses out there that have actually proven a viable um, uh, business model where the economics are sustainable and make sense. So at, at least from what I've seen. So um, I think it's, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of AI opportunity. Um, a lot of technical interest and entrepreneurial interest going into the category, but definitely something to be very careful of. I'm not sure if you had anything to to add to that, Ron. No, I I agree. I'm sort of a, an optimist as a consumer in um, in the AI space, but from an investment side of things, a lot more cautious. And you can see it in our deal flow data. Just the 
the spike in number of companies that are using AI in their pitch deck because uh, we sort of we, we track our deal flow and we'll tag you know like the, the the software type the industry things like that and like you know I don't know if it's half but it's 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 spiked dramatically that the number of companies coming in saying they are in some way related or um, building AI has just gone through the roof and you know it's just not true because we don't have that much AI genuine AI talent so I think there's a lot of noise um, and that makes us nervous so we typically sit back do a lot of reading thinking let others move first when something is moving this quickly because frankly I think there's gonna be a lot of mistakes um, and whilst we like risk we don't like making a lot of mistakes so um, yeah I'll I'll keep playing with Dali and ChatGPT on my own time, but um, I, I doubt we'll be doing. <laughs> well, the reason why I like using fund managers is, let's be honest, you guys are substantially more intelligent about than I would ever be in a particular topic. I'm just a you know jack of all trades, knowledgeable at everything, but not as much as anything. But what I, what I uh, what I can't what seems to have me dialed in is the social media, um, you know, platforms. You know what I want. Clearly, I must have been talking about contracts. Um, to somebody or like accidentally maybe just thinking it and they've uh, tapped my thoughts. But I, there's this, I can't remember the app that came up and how they pitched it was it's an app created by artificial, by, uh, by AI, which is essentially like the chat GPT for legal negotiating contracts. Give us a contract, say specifically exactly what you want. And we will negotiate as hard or as little as possible our particular things and give you options I was just so excited until I found out, oh, you know, it, it, oh, please put your information in here and, you know, we'll send you um, uh, an update, you know, when it's actually about to work. And I'm like, well, that's great. I kind of need it today, <laughs> uh, you know. So that to me, um, you know, we're seeing AI, you know, software as a service businesses. There are, there, are, there are services like that, that, you know, business owners like myself, that is a viable business. That there is incredibly helpful um, it can get me a running jump on something. And then just like when you get sick, you doctor Google. It doesn't mean I'm right, but at least it gives me the ability to play with something that I couldn't potentially play before and then take, you know, a couple of versions, go what I think, and then take that to a professional who has trained for 400 hours, 1,400 years, whatever it is, to get the advice that's appropriate. You know, wouldn't you agree that that there is a viable something that sounds interesting? Is there anything like that? Fine. Is that actually a real business? It's probably just some you know dodgy marketing yeah. thing on Instagram. But like, um, is, have you seen any businesses like in the legal practices um, that would be quite attractive in that particular area? Not in the AI space. I know some stuff exists. I may have seen the same thing as you. The the negotiating the Chat GPT for negotiating. I didn't try it though. Um, I'm always wary of like uploading our lo our legal documents into stuff like that until I know like who the company is and, and what's behind them because you know, they're, they're capturing that data. No one reads the T's and C's. Like what do they do with that? So um, I've seen them around. I know the potential for disruption in the legal industry space from AI is huge, right? Um, which is worrying a lot of the younger lawyers that I talk to. Um but haven't seen any in the flesh. Interesting. I didn't even think about that. Obviously, the copyright makes a lot of sense. But the yeah. So, but anything that's just high service. Well, we're seeing in financial planning as well. Um, you know, anything that's you know 
high amount of legal work that can essentially take an eight hour task and turn it into two hours mm. and spit out something that's highly accurate is a great result. I think you're making a good point, but like there, there are a lot of different use cases where um, as a consumer or a business using the AI service is valuable. Um, I think that, that there's absolutely no doubt about that. From an investor standpoint, I guess the, the conversation that Ro and I often have uh, or always have is more on the, the back end of that, you know, like who who's actually providing the technology that provides the value and how is that monetized and is that what we're investing in versus the, as a consumer, do you get benefit from using this platform? And those two things, are, while they seem similar, I guess the, the, the difference comes down to who's building the technology and who's getting the economic value of having deployed it to the market. And do they have the right uh, licensing and the right rights to actually be able to monetize that particular technology and then own the IP behind it as well. Um, so it's those kind of questions that we we find ourselves asking. Um, there's absolutely no shortage of really funky tools on on the internet now that are powered by AI that that actually have very decent use cases and uh, they they can be quite helpful for to your point making things more efficient or even accessible. So. Um, yeah, I think like you're absolutely right. There's there's some really cool stuff out there. Uh, yeah, but in terms of what we, what we're thinking and what we're doing, we're just keeping a keen eye out there, and uh, I guess analyzing everything that comes across the desk to try and really understand economic value and business models. Well, thanks, Dan. AI is always quite interesting. But back back to the back to the fund itself. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about uh, this the second fund. Um, what's the best way they can find um, information, or is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think they might need to know? Um, look, I think the the best way to reach out to us is uh, probably on LinkedIn. You can reach out to Ro and I directly. I'm always pretty active on LinkedIn to make sure that I get back to any of the people that reach out. Um, in terms of learning more about our fund and, and what we're working on and I guess our philosophy, we have a website that you can access at arborcapital.co uh, that talks a little bit about the philosophy. Um, and in terms of you know what we're working on at the moment, we are still raising that fund. Um, it is permanent in nature. So uh, annually we do open the books and, and would love to speak to uh, investors and, and family officers that really share our, our philosophy and would be interested in having a further conversation. Last question I like finishing on is uh, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, geez, that's, that's, you've got me completely unprepared for that one. I've got no idea. Uh, what keeps me up at night? I think at the, at the minute, you know, Ro and I have been on a a journey of, of building our business over the last two years. And um, it's, you know, it's been a tough economic in, environment and just generally uh, a very tough environment to have discussions about venture capital and, and raising funds. So I think that's, um, that's always been challenging, but uh, a challenge worth uh, overcoming and pursuing. So we're pushing forward and, and doing the best we can in the current environment. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll pass to you, Ron. Yeah, I think managing other people's money always keeps you up at night, I, I agree. I uh, think to some degree, uh, I'd be worried if it didn't. Um, and getting me up in the morning, probably literally and figuratively, my three-year-old and two-year-old get me up in the morning um, earlier than I would like, but, uh, but it's worth it. 
Well, gents, it's great to have you on and um, really appreciate the insights you've given. I've learned, learned a lot today. Um, so with that being said, I uh, wish you the best and I uh, look forward to having you on again. Awesome. Thanks for having fun, us, mate. Thank you. Thank you. expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.